You may be seated. Open your Bible this morning to Revelation chapter 11. Chapter 11 this morning, and we, we just sang this song, Crown Him with Many Crowns, because that really is the broad theme, or a broad theme, of the entire canon of Scripture. The rule and the reign of God over all creations. The rule and reign of God in Christ over all the earth. And we can go all the way back to the beginning to catch a glimpse of that. We go back to Genesis 1, to the God who made everything out of nothing. There was nothing there. It was ex nihilo, nothing there. He spoke it into existence, and he gives life to all that is. He rules over it all. He's the king over it all. And then also there in Genesis 1, among the things that he made, he made male and female, humans, in his image. And why is that so significant? Because he's the king, he's the ruler of all things. He created image bearers to place in his creation to act as, the official word, as vice regents, his ambassadors, to, to, to rule and reign over his creation in his stead, for him. He works through his people, giving us authority as his image bearers over all things. And that was the cultural mandate that God gave to Adam in the Garden of Eden. The Lord is on his throne. He provided food and everything that Adam and Eve needed in the, in the garden because he rules over all things. He gave Adam and Eve commands for how they were to live unto him. Why? Because he's the king. He's ruled. This is my father's world. He gets to call the shots. And then also, God's kingly reign over all things is seen after Adam and Eve broke God's rules, right? God gave them rules. They broke the rules. And his kingly reign is seen in the judgment he brings upon them. Although he does, he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. They cannot have fellowship with him anymore. That's the punishment. That's the judgment. Yet there's also mercy. Because he promises, right, Genesis 3.15, that though Eve is now kicked out of the garden, though they are now his enemies, she will bear a child, the seed of the woman, who will come and ultimately crush the skull of the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. What gives God the right to, get, to be merciful to Adam and Eve in that moment? They deserve judgment. Now, the king is right to give judgment. What gives him the right to be merciful, to promise a child who will come and fix what they did wrong. Well, he's the one who gets the right to do that because he's the ruler, because he's the king. And so his, his reign is seen over and over from just the start of the Bible. One of the things we see acknowledge about what is this God? He's the creator of all things and, and of everyone and everything, and he rules over everyone and everything. And then I would commend to you that the rest of the Bible, from Genesis chapter 4, all the way through to the book of Revelation, takes us on a human journey of humanity rebelling against that king. All right? We don't want a king. I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I want to do what I want to do. And we see that with, in, in, in the stories of, of, of the Old Testament. We see the rule of the king in the gracious work of redemption through Jesus Christ. 
where He saves those that He elected before the foundation of the world. He secured them in His kingdom. He secured them in a world that has gone hostile to Him, in a world that's gone crazy. He has saved them. He has secured them. And He has promised a final consummation of judgment upon the world where He will stand victorious over all His enemies. The whole storyline of the Bible from Genesis all the way through to Revelation is the rule of God over all things. All of Scripture is about this. That's why we crown him with many crowns. He's worthy. He is the king. And why do I start with this overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and God's kingly rule? Because that's what Revelation 11:14 14 through 19 is drilling home to us this morning. Revelation chapter 11 We'll be looking this morning at verses 14 through 19. The title of the message this morning is, The Kingdom of God Will Come in Fullness. Will come, emphasize it, underline it. Revelation chapter 11, we'll begin reading in verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. And then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Again, the title of this message this morning is The Kingdom of God Will Come in Fullness. Now, you notice we're picking up in verse 14. Why? Well, we left off right before that. We last week looked at the first half of chapter 11, where you may remember that the true church of Jesus Christ, what we call theologically the invisible church of Jesus Christ, the church throughout the ages that only God knows, right? God looks at the heart. The visible church is we see people who come to church every week. But Jesus himself says, unfortunately, not everyone who plays church, plays Christian, is truly born again. The invisible church is the church that God knows, the true church. And, and the true church of Christ, we saw last week, is measured, is counted, it's, it's, it's kept by, by Jesus Christ. And not only that, we, we, we saw that her witness to the world is met, met with bitter opposition. Her witness to the world, that's our responsibility in the world, to, to, to this lost world, proclaim Christ, to show Christ, to be ambassadors of Christ to the world around us. Look to Jesus, turn to Him, repent, forsake all else. Look to Jesus. But that witness to the world will be met with bitter opposition. That's what we saw last week. And even at times, it will seem like the world kills the church. It will seem like the 
world kills or silences the message, the pure message of the glories and excellencies of Christ, of who he is and what he's done, and that's portrayed in the killing of the two witnesses. Again, I uphold symbolic of the ministry of the word of God, the preaching, the proclamation of Christ Jesus, which has gone on from the Old Testament to the New. At times it appears that those dead, but God raises them up over and over again, raises up the preaching of the word, raises up the proclamation of Jesus Christ in seasons of restoration and revival. And if we look at church history, we see this. We see times where where God moved powerfully through the preaching of his word because that is the central component of the life of the church, the preaching of the word. It's always been so. But there are times in church history where the influence of the world compromised with the world trying to, preaching is ineffective. So what, do we try something else? No, no, you stay faithful. Pray that God would restore our eyes to Jesus Christ, and he does. He raises up wonderful ministries, raises up people to hear the word of God, to respond to the word of God, brings revival, and church history has been like this. But at no point has the world been able to silence the ministry of the word of God, nor will it. And that restoration, that revival, the resurrection of the preaching of the word where we left off last week is but a reflection of the true and better resurrection where the people of God will be resurrected to eternity with God forever when Christ returns. That's where we've been. That closes out that interlude between the six and the seven trumpets that we've been looking at for the past couple of weeks. You remember in chapter 9, we got through the first six blowings of the trumpet, the trumpet judgments of Christ upon the world. And then there came an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet where he was just ministering to the church, where he's just kind of shepherding us. Listen, as you go in the world, you're faithfully proclaiming the word of God, the ministry of the word goes on in the church, you're going to meet opposition. All right, just, just expect, and there's going to be times it feels like the church has died. There's going to be a feel, it's going to, people will tell you, God's, the church isn't effective anymore. The preaching of the word is not effective anymore. Oh, we're not seeing results, so therefore the preaching, the problem is that. Don't believe it. Proclaim, 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 look to Jesus. Because in his season, the Lord will resurrect the preaching of the ministry of the word. So we've gotten through that season of encouragement where Christ in John is, is encouraging his church. And now our text picks up this morning where he left off before the interlude. The sixth seal had blown, or sixth trumpet. And now in verse 14 we read, The second woe has passed, behold, the third woe is excuse me, soon to come. This third woe is the seventh trumpet that's described for us in verses 15 through 19. Now, this particular trumpet, the seventh trumpet in verses 15 through 19, differs, I would say, significantly from the blowing of the previous six trumpets in these ways. Number one, the first six were from an earthly perspective. Remember, again, we're talking about the trumpet blows, and it's Jesus' judgment upon a world that rejects him. And it affects both physical things, remember, uh, land and oceans and fresh waters and sky, right? Remember those first four, they go together, the physical judgment. And then there's spiritual judgments that we saw in the fifth and sixth trumpet. Those were all from an earthly perspective. This one, the seventh, is from a heavenly perspective. I think that will be clear as we go on. Another difference between the seventh trumpet and what's become before it is that the first six trumpets dealt with temporal judgment. 
things that are constantly going on but not final judgment. All right, final judgment means it's over, it's ended. The seventh trumpet deals with final judgment. It's now the, the final measure of God's wrath poured out. So uh, this is where it, it, it distinguishes from that. This is now the very end. All who were going to be saved have been saved. All those who are not, they're going to be judged now. That's what the seventh seal is. It's, if you will, fast-forwarding to the very end. And I think in this vision, John wants us to, to see and understand this. Believers who are living in a world that lives in rebellion to Christ, and it's hard, and it feels like, when's he coming back? Will he come back? The argument we hear now is, wait, we've been waiting 2,000 years? Yes, it can come at any day, but who's to say it won't be another 2,000 years? We don't know. The seventh trumpet is John's proclamation to us saying, no, we don't know when, but it will come in fullness. It will come, and this is what it's going to look like from heaven's vantage point. Right? That's what this seventh trumpet is. It's the answer to the prayer. We were supposed to have been praying all along. How did Jesus instruct us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Absolutely, that will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We've been, that's the prayer that, that Christ himself said we should be praying every day, every moment of the day. We want the the. the fullness of your kingdom to come here. Well, the seventh trumpet says, prayer answered. Those are not wasted prayers just because it doesn't happen in your lifetime or on your timetable. Don't stop praying that prayer. This is the answer to that. We should continue to pray for his kingdom to come on earth in the present because it's coming. It's a sure thing. And it's our praying for it. It is a means of grace to help us cling to that promise, the promise of the seventh trumpet. So that's what John is showing us here in the seventh trumpet, final judgment, not unlike, again, wait a minute, haven't we seen final judgment before? Yeah, in the seventh seal, right? You remember that one? So why are we looking at it again? Is there a final, final judgment? No, it plays into exactly what we're trying to understand the structure of Revelation is. It's cyclical. We're taking another pass around. He's showing us what we already saw in the seventh seal, now in the seventh trumpet, with a little bit of a different emphasis than what we saw before. So how does John show us? What he's already shown us before in the seventh seal, how does he show us this time that the Christ's kingdom will come in fullness? I, this just fascinates me. He does it in song. He does it in a hymn. Look at your text. You see the indentation. He does it in a song. Two songs in particular. In verses 14 and 15, a hymn of triumph. And then in verses 16 through 18, a hymn of thanksgiving. A hymn of triumph and a hymn of thanksgiving. And that's how we'll look at this text this morning, at these two hymns. First of all, a hymn of triumph. But... Notice again, he's doing this through singing. And I think there's a message there to you and I of the great prophet of singing. 
Listen, we saw this morning, and we see it every Sunday, not just this Sunday. Listen, when we gather to sing, our voices, man, there's not many of us who can sing worth a lick. <laughs> and I, I'm right there with you. There's a reason I'm constantly checking my microphone. Please tell me it's off. down here while we're singing. I don't want you to hear. Our singing is imperfect. We make mistakes. We don't always get the words right. Sometimes we're on different verses. But our heart is We sing because God uses it as a means of grace. He uses the words, if we're using faithful words, He's using words to express great doctrines of the faith to Him and to us, to preach to Him and to our own hearts the greatness, the doxologies of our Lord. And each of these serve as a reminder to us, these songs right here, that don't underestimate the power of what we do before we come up for the preaching. Listen, no, we, we're not fancy performers. No, we don't have fog. And no, we don't have all the great instrumentation. And I, I don't know that I, I would care for that in the least anyway. I mean, if we're trying to entertain one another, then we better go that route. Nothing we've done this morning is entertaining. But if we're just bringing our souls before God, it's just raw. And God uses songs in our imperfect efforts at worship to express these glorious truths to Him and to our own hearts because... We need them. That's what's happening here in these two songs here. In verse 15, we're told, we're told about these loud voices in heaven who are singing. Who are they? It doesn't say. Uh, maybe they're angels. Maybe it's the voices of the redeemed. I don't know. What's the point? The point is this. The point is they are unifying, whoever they are, their voices together to express in a unified sentiment the kingly reign of Christ. That he reigns, he rules of, uh, over all things. That our God reigns. They've united together in that praise. Just as the seventh seal, remember that, it kind of had the opposite thing. Remember the seventh seal? They went silent for about half an hour. Why? It was awestruck wonder. It was final judgment. The sixth seal had taken place who can stand? Well, the church, the sealed, that was, that was chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, we have the unfolding of the, the seventh seal. It's over. The God who made promises to love and to redeem and to protect and keep his people for all eternity. He's done it. And, 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 and from heaven's perspective, the church is just struck in awestruck wonder. You know, they can't even get anything out. They're so excited. It's, ah. I don't know how he did it. Throughout church history, it looked like, man, the, the world was destroying the church, destroying the preaching of the ministry. Man, Christians were being turned away from Christ, compromised with the world. But he did it. Awestruck wonder. Well, here with the seventh trumpet, it's the same expression of awestruck wonder. Just now the silence has ended, and we just sing the praises. He's done it. And... In this trumpet on final judgment, John doesn't tell us everything. The fact that, again, if we were reading the, the book of Revelation chronologically, like this has to happen, this has to happen, this has the book of Revelation should end here. It should have ended at the end of the, the, the seventh seal, but it didn't. It went on. We've looked at it again. It should end here, except for the fact that, no, he's going to keep coming back around, because he doesn't explain everything here, but 
when we get to chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, he's going to fill in a lot of the gaps. He's going to explain more because it's cyclical. So he's not going to tell us a lot here. Let's focus upon what he does tell us. What it is he wants us to grasp and to be encouraged by is that make no mistake about it. It may not feel like it right now, but our king, our God, he will reign forever and ever and ever. Do not lose hope. Now, let's get into the songs themselves. In this first hymn of triumph, notice in verse 15, you have these voices together saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Notice John identifies two kingdoms there. Right? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. Now, we need to deal with that idea of kingdom. Uh, most of the time our mind thinks of a, a landmass. Right? A physical mass of land, a body of land. That's not the idea here. That's not the idea of the rule or the kingdom that we see all throughout Scripture. The idea here is, is, is that the rule, the rule over this kingdom and the rule over that kingdom, who is sovereign, who calls the shots, who's in control, that's what the kingdom is. And so what verse 15 is saying here is that with the blowing of this seventh trumpet... There are two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what is the blowing of the trumpet? It says Christ has now taken over the rule of this world. He's taken it over, the dominion from Satan. He's taken it away. And now he reigns over all things forever and ever. Do you see that? Do you get that? You recall the kingdom of the world that he speaks of here. It's not the original kingdom that God created. The original kingdom that God created to rule over, Genesis 1 and 2, that he said was good every step of the way. The kingdom of this world that he speaks of here came about in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they disobeyed him. They fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. But even this kingdom really predates that. It goes all the way back to that angel, Satan himself, who was created by God to know, love, and serve God. And Satan himself desired in his own heart, I don't want to serve the Most High. I want to be the Most High. I want to be Him. I want to rule. And so he led, remember, a third of the angelic host to rebel against God, against uh, His rule. And we see this most clearly manifested with the serpent who ushers into the Garden of Eden and tempts Eve and Adam, provokes them with the exact same lie that was in his heart. You want to be like the Most High. You see, God's holding back from you. He's so restrictive. He's kind of handcuffing you. He says, you can do all this, but you can't do this. Why won't he let you do this? Because he knows in the day that you eat of that, you're going to become just like him. Isn't that what Satan wanted? And he provokes, he provokes uh, Eve and Adam with the same thing. And so they take of it in opposition to God's rule. And in that moment, spiraling all of humanity out of the kingdom, out of the garden, into the kingdom of man. That's under the rule of Satan. Right? This is just basic understanding of the structure of the Bible. There's two kingdoms. There's been two kingdoms since that time. Jesus spoke of this when he was on trial before Pilate. Remember? He said, 
My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. There's something altogether different. When the devil tempted Jesus, he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. I can't begin to imagine what he saw. It probably showed him the Roman Empire. It probably showed him the Chinese Empire, the, the kingdoms of South America, ancient Ethiopia, all kinds of ancient wonders there. So they can all be yours. Now, the way you're supposed to get them is through the cross. You bow down before me, I'll, just, I'll give them to you. You can have all these land masses, and you can rule over them. To which Jesus replied, depart from me, Satan. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Because that's the rule of the kingdom of God. Serve God only. The kingdom of the world. Notice it's singular. The kingdom of the world. Well, there's a lot of diverse land masses that make up this kingdom of the world. It indicates, though in the world there are Nations and governments and political powers who disagree with each other on everything. There is a crazy, crazy, strange union in that they are united by this. They all hate God. They all hate his rule. And though they may disagree on how to rule their own kingdoms, they're in agreement on this. We don't want God to rule us. That's what we see in Psalm chapter 2. Why are the nations raging, right? That's what the psalmist asks. And they say, we're trying to break the fetters, the handcuffs, if you will, that God has put on us. We've united together. We will not let him be our king. We will not let our maker be our God. We will not let him have rule over us. We are going to do what we want to do, and we are breaking that bond. We don't want him to be our boss. Go back and look at Psalm 2. We've referenced it a few times. He who sits in heaven, what? Laughs. <laughs> Little do they know, they're playing right into his eternal plans and purposes. And here we see that. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. With this seventh trumpet, Satan no longer has dominion. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, no sin is permitted in the fullness of Christ's kingdom. No temptation will ever threaten again. No more sickness, no more illness, no more tears, no more nothing. Again, that's not laid out in this text. We're going to get a fuller understanding of that as we continue on. But the point here is, O oh, church living in the time between the ascension of Jesus Christ and his return, Oh, you've got opposition, and at times it seems like it silences the church, it kills the preaching of the word, it seems like the world has, over, has killed the church. The seventh trumpet blows. Your king, the fullness of his rule and reign, will come to pass. You see how he's trying to encourage us? The hymn also tells us that it's the, in verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. It speaks of a joint rule, the Father and the Son. And notice this, we're not going to spend a lot of time with it. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord, of the Father, and of His Christ. And what's the pronoun there? He. What would you expect the plural to be? They. And they. Why is it he? It's speaking to the Trinitarian unity of the Father and the Son. 
that it speaks of the, the co-regency, if you will, of the Father and Son united together in purpose and power and rule over things, in, united in majesty, united in glory, united in preeminence. So united that there's no need to even use the plural pronoun they. He, two and one. And it's not, it's not neglecting the Holy Spirit there. All throughout Revelation, the, 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 the Holy Spirit has been upheld as the applier of all the Father and the Son have accomplished. So, if you're ever asked, well, who is it who rules in the eternal kingdom? Is it the Father or the Son? Yes. <laughs> it's, it, it is, yes, the Father, yes, the Son. Co-regents, two and one, united together in glory. No division in the Godhead, no partitioning in the Godhead, no one part more important than the other. Father, maybe a little bit more important than the Son. No division, no disunity. This one triune God with the blowing of the seventh trumpet in final judgment, it's over. He reigns forever and ever. Does that mean anything to you? This has to go beyond just a, okay, all right, I'm, 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 I got my end times category going. Revelation is the most practical book in the Bible for you and I today. I stand by that. What's this saying here? He shall reign forever and ever. No power can overthrow him, ever. Nothing. You have nothing to fear. There's nothing you have to worry about. And what's true for, again, the seventh seal is taking us to the final, final judgment. What's true, that is true for us today. John gives us this vision of that so we will live in light of it today. And, and so that when life today seems unsettling, when life today seems just out of control, when life today, the difficulties seem just so hard to bear, grasp onto this. He will reign forever and ever and ever and ever, and no opposition can ever overthrow him. Whatever we're going through today or this week, it will not last. See, he wants us to have this worldview of the story of the Bible that started in Genesis and will take us all the way through to the end. This is a hymn of triumph. And that's to encourage us. That's what we see there in verses 15 and 16. A hymn of triumph, of celebration. He's done it. He's done it. The king rules. The king reigns. Listen. We're not pie-in-the-sky Christians who walk around just, we understand this life is hard. But it's this vision that looking unto Jesus on His throne, He rules, He reigns, that is intended as a means of grace to encourage us, to strengthen us, to give us hope, even in our darkest of days. It's a song of triumph. What a wonderful hymn for us to sing. But there's another hymn here. In verse 16, a hymn of thanksgiving. I told you in verse 14, 15, and 14 and 15, we, we don't really know who it is who's singing. It's just loud voices united together. But in verse 16, with this hymn, the hymn of thanksgiving, it's clear who sings this one. We read, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Now, why are they doing it? This is their response to that hymn of triumph. He did it. He accomplished it. Our God reigns. He rules. He's defeated all of his enemies. 
No one can overthrow him. Eternally, our hope is in our king. His kingdom wins. And in response to that comes these 24 elders. Think back. Metaphorically, all this is symbolic. What do the 24 elders symbolize? Right? A multiple of 12. The 12 tribes of, uh, of, of Israel. The, the 12 apostles, apostles. The church of Jesus Christ. In the old covenant. In the new covenant. This is symbolic of the church throwing themselves down, the church throughout the ages, and praising God with thanksgiving for what He has done and how He's accomplished it through Jesus. And these 24 elders, their their nearness to the throne, the intimacy they have with God, man, it's just awe-inspiring. They are in the presence. Almighty God. Notice the thanks that they give beginning in verse 16. We give you thanks, Lord God Almighty. They're thanking here the Father primarily for His omnipotence. We thank you that you are all-powerful. In a world where we saw empires and your opposition rise up, and man, it looked like at times they were going to defeat your kingdom. They were going to overthrow it. We look back now, seventh trumpet. We look back, and we are thankful for your omnipotent power. You are God Almighty, who was, who is, and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. This thanksgiving for the omnipotence of God is aimed at the Father. We see that based upon previous testimony here of the language that's used. They are adoring the Father for His role in conquering Satan, in conquering sin, in conquering the flesh, in subduing this, this world that we live in that man, is so hostile to Christ, so hostile to God, and it makes life miserable for the seven churches and for you and I. He subdued them. And he did so by omnipotent power. I think it's interesting. God, at least three times up to this point, there may be more, that was just the ones I could find. At least three points up to this time, the Father has been referenced as the one who was and is, and what comes next is to come. It's it's very consistent. But notice here, there's something different, a significant variation. He still addresses the one who is and who was, but instead of referring to him as the one who is to come, he's referred to as the one who has taken up his great power, his might, his omnipotence, and begun to reign. And I think this makes sense, but let's just spell it out. Why not call him the one who is to come? Because what's the seventh trumpet focusing upon? The finished product. He has come. This is from the heavenly perspective. He has come. He is ruling. And so now the one who was and is, is now the one who has taken up his great power and begun to reign. So it just kind of helps us to see, oh yeah, this is talking about kind of the final culmination of it all and final judgment. And in that moment, you thank him and you praise him because how in the world is he able to take the kingdom of this world and turn it into his own kingdom, the kingdom of the Lord and of His Son, Jesus, 
who will reign forever and ever is by omnipotent power. One of the things we saw early on in Revelation chapter 1, a doxology that praised Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This goes back to chapter 1, verses 4 and following. It praises the Father as the architect of the plan of redemption. You remember that? We extol you. It praised Jesus Christ for the one who accomplishes God's plan of redemption. And it praises the Holy Spirit for the one who applies it to the hearts and lives of his people. Well, we can look back now from this finished product, the seventh trumpet looking backward. What is the, how did he by omnipotent power overthrow the kingdom of Satan? How did he do it? It's through Christ. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 talks about the, the lamb who was slain and purchased for God with his blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and he has made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God who will reign upon the earth. It's through the blood of Christ. And so we praise God for his omnipotent power, the architect of salvation that has he's accomplished it through Christ's redemptive work. The work on the cross, the forgiveness of sins, he pays our debt, and through the Holy Spirit's converting work. In our soul, taking out that heart of stone, putting in a heart of flesh, bringing in conviction of sin, bringing in, again, the New Testament says that faith in Jesus Christ is a gift of God. It's not something intrinsic that we just kind of muster up. Repentance, Acts chapter 14 says, is a gift of God. It's not something we just do. Anytime someone repents, it's because God has given the gift, the grace to do so power of God to conquer our rebel hearts. Praise be to God, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit for His mighty power. And also praise Him for His justice. Thank Him for His mighty power. Thank Him for His justice. Verse 18. What happens when the kingdom comes in fullness and God's reign eclipses the reign of Satan? That's the question. What happens? How do the nations respond when the seventh trumpet is blown? And they have been exercising all of their best efforts to dethrone God, to break free from the fetters. They don't want his rule. How do the nations respond when in final judgment he comes and conquers them once and for all? That's what verse 18 is. The nations raged. Again, that draws to mind Psalm chapter 2. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged. Again, that, that statement itself confirms, again, this is final judgment. The seventh trumpet is final judgment, just like we saw in the seventh seal. Now we're looking at it again with new information here, new eyes. But your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying destroyers of the earth. They are thanking God. These 24 elders are thanking God, not just for his power, but his justice. That he ultimately did deal with his enemies. Now, in the first six trumpets, right, there was restrained judgment. And remember the, do you remember the cry of the, uh, the martyrs 
in, in Revelation chapter 7. How long, O oh Lord? Listen, we see your judgment on, but they deserve worse than this. How much longer? And Christ's response was, it's not time yet. There's more of my people who need to die. It's not over yet. But it will come. It will come. Well, here, this is the thanksgiving for his justice. It did come. He did not tell a lie, if you will. He was faithful to his promise. Those who have rejected Jesus Christ, he has poured out his wrath upon. The time for the dead to be judged that we read about there in verse 18, the time for the dead to be judged is not a chronological time. It's not a time and time and space. It is the event, the event that's been foreshadowed. It's been foreshadowed when God kicked Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, judgment. It's, it's been foreshadowed in Genesis 3.15 when God announced the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, judgment. It's been foreshadowed in the worldwide flood of, Adam, of uh, Noah's Ark. The judgment is coming. And now everything that all of those Old Testament judgments were pointing towards now Time for the dead to be judged. The event that all of those previous judgments were pointing towards, now that event is here with the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Now what this does is it reminds us of the certainty of final judgment. None of us knows the time, but at the very least we must be assured just as he promised Noah that the flood was coming and it happened, and so too, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal. And we haven't got there yet, but the seventh bowl, all pointing towards final judgment, all talking about the same thing. Oh, they are certain to come. You know, little ones, we were talking about question two of the catechism. What is God? He's the creator of everyone and everything. And that is true. But there's more. That's the foundation and we'll build on that. But also we learn here, he's the judge of his creation. That creation that he created for him rebelled against him. And he will judge this creation. Well, when's he going to do it? He hasn't done it yet. That's mercy. That is kindness. Do not presume upon his patience by thinking, oh, he's not in a hurry with it. It's not important to it. When the seventh trumpet blows, the time has come. The event is here. There is not a last moment gasp. You may say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He had his last moment. I mean, he was on the cross. Maybe there's that moment. No, no, no. That's what the first six trumpets are. We are on the cross, restrained judgment. And his restrained judgments are calling us Final judgment is near, and it is certain. Repent now before it's too late. It's time for the dead to be judged with the seventh seal. That, the, the dead there can be both unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, they will be destroyed. And I don't mean annihilated. I mean they will be destroyed in the sense of eternity with God without his mercy, without his grace, in hell. Believers, on the other hand, will be rewarded. Not because of how wonderful they are, but because of Jesus Christ. 
and because of his life, his death, his resurrection. So it's a hymn, a thanksgiving for the, um, for the power of God, for the justice of God. Notice lastly in verse 19, in God's temple in heaven was opened. This is final judgment. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. That is massive. Don't rush past that. The implication here is that up until this point, the temple was closed. Now, let me qualify that for a moment. The temple was closed in the sense of Adam and Eve dwelled in the Garden of Eden, in the presence of God. That was kind of a, an earthly temple. The, play, the temp, Old Testament temple was always the place where God dwelled. And the Garden of Eden was kind of a, a pre-temple temple, if you will. When they got kicked out, angels were put there. There was no going back. The temple, if you will, was closed. Now God raised up a tabernacle in the temple and allowed by grace access, but even then it wasn't for everybody, right? The priest, the high priest, and even then only once a year, and then had to go in with blood. So it's pointing to this reality, an opening of the temple, but it wasn't open. And even when Christ on the cross dies and the veil of the temple is torn in two, that's symbolic. Yes, Christians have access to God through Jesus Christ, but it's not this access of after final judgment, the temple is open. Notice the, the imagery here. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. What's the ark of the covenant there? It's that box, of course, that contains his law, which is the revelation of God's character and the mercy seat on top covered with blood. The point here is this. That ark is symbolic of superlative intimacy with God. We have a relationship with God in Jesus Christ. But it will only get sweeter and better when we're in his presence forever. And that's what he means here. Now, God's temple in heaven was open. But notice this. At the very same time God's temple in heaven was open and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple, there were simultaneously flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All symbolic of wrath. Final judgment has come. For some, it will be intimacy with God. In Jesus Christ. And for others, it will be certain wrath, certain death. Same event, but for different people, a different result. This closes out the trumpet judgments. Let us be reminded why trumpets? What were the trumpets for? We talked about this weeks ago. Trumpets were always used in the Old Testament to announce God's presence and to announce God's about to do something that only He can do. And the most natural allusion, it takes us all the way back to Joshua chapter 6, where you remember God had given Israel the promised land. He had said, I'm going to give it to you. Joshua leads them in. There's a problem. What? What is in between them and the promised land? Enemies. The enemies of God, the enemies of the world. And so they blocked entry of God's people into that promised land. 
in order for God's people to get what God has promised to them, they've got to get through that enemy. And God says, I'll take care of this for you. Here's what I want you to do. For six days, I want you to march around Jericho, this, this landmass, this, this city, the walled city that stands between you and your, eternal, your inheritance, symbolic inheritance. I want you to march around six days with the Ark of the Covenant in front. And on the seventh day, with seven trumpets, I want you to blow the trumpets. And is there anything magical about the trumpets, how loud they are? It makes the walls crumble? No, what is it? They symbolize God's omnipotent presence. He's going to crush Jericho. The walls come crumbling down. Jericho will be defeated, and God's people will receive what God promised to them. These whole trumpet judgments are intended to help us understand as the church, the seal of Jesus Christ by grace, we are living in a world that is in rebellion to Him as we live between the ascension and His return. He has promised us, even in the seventh trumpet, the, ark, the temple will be open. Intimacy with me. Clear vision of the ark. What stands between? World. A world that's in rejection to Him. These trumpets serve the exact same purpose they served around Jericho. These are judgments of the king upon the world who live in rebellion of Christ and his church. And with the seventh trumpet, the walls come tumbling down. There will be loud peals of thunder, earthquake. Again, symbolic imagery, just simply of God's judgment. And in that moment, the kingdom of the world that's a nuisance, a hostile to God, our problem becomes the kingdom of the Lord. And he will reign forever and ever. And he says, come on into the promised land. By the blood of Jesus Christ, come on in. Behold your inheritance. Behold your God. Our job, as we, these trumpets are blowing, is to cling, is to trust, is to hold on to this vision is to make sure that as we go through this life and the difficulties of it, that we absolutely know the promise of the fullness of God's kingdom will come. The trumpets are blowing. He will bring us home by grace.